Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works, or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. I recently posted a special Patreon bonus episode where Elizabeth Barnhill and I talk about book pairings, nonfiction and fiction books that can be read together to enhance the reading experience of both books. I hope you'll check it out. Today, I am speaking with Cindy Weinstein and Dr. Bruce Miller about Finding the Right Words, a story of literature, grief, and the brain. Cindy was born and raised in Verona, New Jersey. She received her BA in English and American Literature from Brandeis University, after which she went to UC Berkeley for her PhD in English. She is currently the Eli and Edith Broad Professor of English and has been at the California Institute of Technology since 1989. In 2018-2019, She was an Atlantic Fellow in the Global Brain Health Institute based at UCSF and Trinity College Dublin, where she studied neurology with an interdisciplinary group of scientists, artists, social scientists, and physicians. During this time, she worked with Dr. Bruce Miller on finding the right words. Dr. Miller holds the A.W. and Mary Margaret Clausen Distinguished Professorship in Neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, where he directs the Memory and Aging Center. As a behavioral neurologist whose work emphasizes brain-behavior relationships, he has reported on the emergence of artistic ability, personality, cognition, and emotion with the onset of neurodegenerative disease. Some of these findings have improved diagnostic accuracy, while others are leading to a deeper understanding of brain functional anatomy and disease risk. My father has Alzheimer's, so this was a particularly personal and relevant interview for me. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Before we get started, I am really excited to tell you about my latest sponsor, The Young Center, here in Houston. The Young Center is delighted to present author and producer Delia Efron on October 5th at their 2021 Fall Benefit, Who's in Your Inbox? Delia Efron talks about life, change, and the relationships that matter. You know Delia's work. With her sister Nora, she co-wrote You've Got Mail and co-produced Sleepless in Seattle. Delia's newest book, coming out in April, is Left on Fifth, A Second Chance at Life. In it, she describes her story of falling in love after the death of her husband and sister, being diagnosed with cancer, and living through it all with humor and grace. To register, go to younghouston.org and click on Delia Efron. I've included a link in the show notes. You will get $10 off your ticket when you write thoughts from a page in the notes. I am personally planning to attend online, and I hope to see you there as well. Welcome, Cindy and Bruce. How are you all today? Great. Doing well. Thank you. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to speaking about Finding the Right Words, a story of literature, grief, and the brain. Why don't we start out with you giving a quick synopsis for those that won't have read it yet? Finding the Right Words is a dual memoir 
that I wrote with Dr. Bruce Miller. And it's the story of my father's early onset Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed in his uh, mid-50s, although he had uh, many symptoms prior to that. I was looking to write the story of my father's illness and my experience of that with someone who really knew the neurology of dementia inside out. And it took me about 10 years to find Bruce. There were many reasons why it took so long. Um, An English professor and I was teaching and writing about Melvin Poe. And then I was in between academic projects and it was my opportunity to write a different kind of academic project with Bruce. And the story is told from the point of view of me as daughter and English professor, someone who loves literature, and Bruce, neurologist extraordinaire. And the way the book is written is it's a series of chapters, each of which focuses on what's called a clinical presentation that I remember uh, my father experiencing, whether that was trying to find a word, getting lost in space, having very unusual behaviors. And I do what's called in English, a close reading of those behaviors. And I talk about how those made me feel and the grief I experienced watching that, listening to my father, not being able to find the right word. And then Bruce looks at those clinical presentations from the point of view of a neurologist and explains to me, who's a stand-in for the reader, what was most likely happening in terms of the brain circuitry and the breakdowns that were taking place. And in the course of the book, I am able to learn neurology, which some some neurology, which I think can be very helpful for readers who are being confronted with this disease. And then Bruce comes to my side of the table and talks about his own experiences, both with literature, with his family. And so it's a really interdisciplinary conversation that takes place and examines how different ways of thinking about a human being can explain what that human being is experiencing when they're dealing with dementia. So that, in a nutshell, is what the book is about and the structure of the book. Bruce, do you have anything you want to add? It, uh, meeting Cindy, it was a surprise. I I'd not thought about uh, writing a book like this with a, a very prominent literary person. But uh, almost immediately upon hearing Cindy's story and the story of her dad, I, I became intrigued. and thought a lot about what the science that we have today helped in terms of thinking about Cindy's dad's deterioration. And ultimately, it led me to think a lot about 
my own brain and the things uh, that related to this terrible illness, Alzheimer's disease. I really liked the format. That was one of the things that resonated with me was Cindy telling her story and then Bruce talking about some of the science and even the history in terms of, you know, at one point, everything ends up lumped in as Alzheimer's, but really there are a number of things. You even have a graphic with the umbrella talking about the various forms of dementia or memory loss. I'm not even sure what the accurate term there would be. I just thought that that was such a great way to get the story across. How did you all decide on that format? That is the million dollar question. I had a vision of what I wanted the book to look like. And it was, as I said, a conversation between me and Bruce. And the structure went through several iterations. At one point, it was divided up. I had a chapter, Bruce had a chapter, I had a chapter, Bruce had a chapter. And then in discussions with the press and the readers' reports, it made more sense to combine the chapters in the way we did. So, for example, there's a chapter about word finding as a kind of umbrella term. And I talk about a particular experience that I recall quite vividly of my father not having a word. And then Bruce reflects upon that anecdote that I describe. And there was really nothing quite like the book that I had in my head. We needed to work to convince the readers that this genre-busting approach to memoir, I called it a dual memoir, was the right way to tell the story. And it turned out sort of more beautifully than I could have possibly imagined because I think that what happened is we started out, me on the humanities literature side, Bruce on the neurology science side. And in the course of writing the book together and sharing stories, there was this sort of beautiful convergence. And I didn't know that would happen, but it did. And I also wanted the reader to know who was telling what part of the story. So my my words are in a slightly different font than Bruce's. And we try and give the reader enough cues to know who's talking when. And I think the structure of the book captures the emergence of our voices merging. And I love that. It was a long haul trying to get the right structure. But all along, I knew that I didn't want this memoir to be one I wrote by myself. And I talk about this in the book because I think the experience of my dad being sick was so lonely. And I realized I didn't have to and didn't want to write this book alone. And so Bruce was my best friend writing this book. And I hope that the structure of the book and the interleaving of our voices captures that. How much did you influence each other? So you start out writing, Cindy, you write your part, Bruce, you write your part. 
Did you all then sit down and talk about them? So did you make changes based on Bruce's thoughts or vice versa? The first chapter I wrote with Cindy was, and we we, we didn't exactly know where this was going to go. I, I, I didn't really know uh, how to best portray the science uh, of Cindy's father's illness. But for reasons that we talk about in the book, um, Cindy's father's first symptoms were probably word finding. He couldn't find the word for crouton. For some people with Alzheimer's, it's memory. For some people, it's navigation. So I was taken by, as was Cindy, the, the, the trouble that Cindy's dad had with the word crouton. And it, it forced me to think a lot about why crouton. It's a, a word we don't use very often. So I think with uh, all language problems, we tend to lose the words that are least familiar. And then started to think about what reading does to the brain and uh, thought about my own childhood where I, I was a voracious reader. And the, the worlds that reading bring to your brain are, are just extraordinary. And I, I started to think about it. Cindy's dad was not a reader. He, 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 he was very different in terms of his strengths and interests and uh, thought about the things that people who don't read lose uh, very early in life and why this make, makes them more vulnerable later in life to language difficulties. So it, it led me in a completely unexpected direction. I, I think that was true for me with ev every story that we told, uh, whether it was memory or behavior, but it, it really you know forced me to challenge my own training, my own ideas about science and and uh, even challenge some of the scientific theories that we use to understand the brain. So if she would write a passage and give it to you, would you then write your passage or did you separately each write and then read each other's? I was very dependent on Cindy's story. And, and I think that was really the driving force of this book. So she, she would write a chapter and then um, I, I would respond uh, like a chorus. And the stories uh, took us through many of the problems of Alzheimer's disease, whether it was memory, our last chapter, or behavior. And luckily for Cindy, her father did not have a lot of behavioral disturbance. But I think this is so important for people who live with Alzheimer's disease and their families, the, the bad behaviors that may emerge. So it, you know, Cindy's narrative drove the scientific discussion. I would add to that when you asked about the influence upon each other, I could not have written my chapters without studying some neurology. And I tell the story of how I met Bruce. And it was just so, so lucky that he answered my email and invited me to his office at UCSF and asked me if I wanted to learn some science. And I applied to this interdisciplinary program run through UCSF. And it was an amazing program that involved me attending classes on neurology, getting to meet caregivers, nurses. I got to be a medical student for a year and spoke with doctors. It was essential for me to develop some kind of fluency with the science 
so I could set the table both in my own chapters about my father's dementia, and those would enable Bruce to then reflect on the neurology behind the symptoms that I was describing. So Bruce's influence was enormous, so much so that I would not have written the book without him. I could not have written the book without him. And without that year studying neurology in this program, as I said, that is located in UCSF and it's called the Global Brain Health Institute. So it was a real dialectic, as we say, the two of us working together and influencing each other. And I think that really shows through in the book. One of the frustrating things for me about Alzheimer's is that not only is there not a cure, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of progress being made. Can you speak to that at all? I mean, I know there was a recent drug approved, but then there seems to be a lot of, I don't know if controversy is quite the right word, but a lot of consternation or concern. When I've spoken to my dad's doctor, the processes you have to go through to even try the drug are pretty onerous. It's incredibly expensive. Why do you think that with a disease that impacts so many people, there's not been a lot of progress? Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you think about cancer where there is some progress, not not massive yet, you have to remember the war on cancer started during Richard Nixon's presidency. You know, this uh, the funding, the interest in, in in cancer has been long and profound. And and I would say our, our budgets for studying probably the most complicated disease uh, that the body can suffer from uh, really just started fairly recently. In the last few years, we've suddenly started to get a budget at the Nas- National Institute of Aging that is uh, equal to the task. And and although, albeit I am an optimist, I, I am extremely excited about progress. And if I could just say two or three things that really excite me in this this era now that I think will make a difference, I, I, I will. The first is, um, finally, we have what we call biomarkers that allow us to diagnose Alzheimer's disease during life. Not only that, we can now diagnose it with different blood and imaging techniques even before someone gets symptoms. So the bad proteins that aggregate in the brain with Alzheimer's disease, amyloid and tau, are, are, are visible 10 to 20 years before someone gets symptomatic. So I, I think when you think of the cancer analogy, this is really exciting. It, it allows us to think about interventions before this disease is in its very late stages. The, the second thing I, I think that has really helped and in this effort is that we now are are thinking more precisely about aging-related disorders. And I think there was a tendency throughout my lifetime, and it's something that I really battled in my own research, to call everything that caused uh, problems uh, associated with the aging process Alzheimer's disease. And without a precise diagnosis, without a diagnosis based on the molecules that accumulate in the brain. I think the clinical studies uh, have mixed, uh, you know, sometimes 20, 30 different diseases as if it were one. And and so this is now changing uh, as our precision during life, the old myth 
you can't diagnose Alzheimer's disease until the brain is cut. It's wrong. We can diagnose it even before the clinical story begins. So I, I, I think the FDA-approved drug is probably the just the glimmer of a beginning. I think we'll be like the cancer field. We'll need to get in early. We'll need drugs, uh, probably multiple drugs, to combat a very complex illness. And we'll need, and we're getting it, real precision around uh, what we're dealing with. And, and I think this will help patients. It will help families. It, it's just critical. Well, that is encouraging. I remember when my dad was finally diagnosed because we had seen one doctor who wasn't very good, didn't do much testing, and then we switched to the woman that we see now who's fabulous. And she did a bunch of testing, and then we sat down, and she went through all of the different written tests, and then he'd had some of the tests you're describing that you can actually pinpoint whether it is Alzheimer's or not. And so we went through all of that. Everything was looking good. She's like, it's all, you know, he did so well on this. He did so well on that. And then she gets to the end, but she's like, however, the brain scan shows that it is Alzheimer's. And it was so crushing because I felt like everything else was so positive. And then they were able to actually say that is what this is. And so I guess we caught it, I don't know if you'd say it early, but really before there were a lot of symptoms. But it is nice that at least they can pinpoint the diagnosis. And if it is Alzheimer's, treat it one way. If it is one of these other memory disorders, you know, go down the path of those different disorders. And it is sort of fascinating to think you would have had 20 different diseases lumped into one clinical trial. That really stood out in the book to me when I was reading that part when you wrote about it, Bruce. And I, and I think for Cindy, and I think for for most caregivers, uh, a, a little certainty about what this is and what you're de dealing with is often, I, I think, therapeutic. The horrible cloud of mystery that Cindy and her father lived under, and it, it was typical of the time, I think just added to the enormous burden on Cindy and her family and, and you know, exacerbated what uh, could have been an opportunity for a daughter and a father to get closer, for father to think about uh, his life and the great things that had happened during it. But I, I think the lack of diagnosis was really part of the tragedy here for Cindy and, and for her dad. I would just add to that, that that's one of the reasons why diagnosis was the first chapter. That was the moment when my world was shattered. My mother may have gotten the diagnosis before that and didn't want to share it yet. I was in graduate school and I think she wanted to protect me from that with good reason. The diagnosis at that time, it was the 80s and everything was Alzheimer's, as you said, Cindy. And one of the most profound moments of my interaction with Bruce was when he gave me the more precise diagnosis, which was early onset Alzheimer's with the logopenic variant, which speaks to the language, the word finding issue. And I write about this in the book that I didn't cry with Bruce when we were talking about this, but at that moment, I came really close because having that diagnosis, having that precision, that certainty, it was like the kaleidoscope came into focus. And it was devastating, absolutely. But 
there was a, a way in which it was also very kind of stabilizing. Oh, that's that's what it was. N- now I understand. And it was just such a revelatory moment and a really, really crucial one in my path to writing the book. I'd written a couple of chapters before I got to UCSF, but the chapters became much better as I learned more neurology and talked more with Bruce and the other amazing doctors at UCSF. But that moment of getting the diagnosis was huge. And I guess that, you know, that's so interesting as I think on that, because for you, your father had passed away and you were getting the diagnosis, you know, later on. For me, I don't know that the diagnosis was a comfort because he seemed to be doing decently well. And then to know that's what it was, you know, it's a death knell and you just know how horrible it's going to be. And so I I have thought about that a lot over the years. I can't decide whether I would have been happy that we know or whether I would have just decided, okay, we know he has some kind of memory issue and, you know, here it is. Yeah, there there's a book that I would recommend it's by a neurologist, Daniel Gibbs, who worked on dementia and now has Alzheimer's. It's called Tattoo on My Brain. And it talks about getting the diagnosis and what he's been doing in the face of that diagnosis. And I found it really interesting and potentially helpful to people who are just getting the diagnosis and their families. He talks about the value of exercise and how, as a neurologist, he sort of collects data on his cognitive function after he's taken a hike or you know, gone for a jog. The interventions that he has taken in his life to preserve his cognitive health in the face of dementia is really quite interesting and I think valuable. We all have different styles, approaches to data. I, I think for some of us, uh, we want to know everything. I see a lot of people like that. want to know every detail, every, every aspect of it that a physician can explain. For, for others, uh, the pain of all of that uh, data is, is, is difficult. But I, I would say I think our field has evolved from a, a space, just like cancer did in decades previously, where diagnosis was hidden hidden from the family, hidden from the patient. A beautiful play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, is all, all about holding back the diagnosis uh, of cancer from the patriarch of the family, Big Daddy. And I, I think this is the ev- just the natural evolution, I think, of healthcare is that a- a- as we move, uh, I, I think, and, and as we get more data and, and as we understand that data, and, and as Cindy touched on, as we think about help, how that data can help us improve our response to a, a disease, I, I think the tendency is more and more to tell the truth, to let people know what they have and what they're facing. And I would say for every one person who describes that as hard, I, I would say 99 people are hugely grateful. For, for that data, for that knowledge. Well, absolutely. I mean, everybody's going to want to know what they have, and that's not at all 
what I meant. It was more like it's just really sad when you learn it, not that you don't want to know it, but more in the end, then you just have this heavy curtain on you and you you have to kind of move forward with it. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know anybody these days who wouldn't want to know the diagnosis. It's just sad when you receive it. Yeah. I think that's so true. And so much of the book is about the grief that goes along with it. And the the book is designed to help readers, both in terms of providing information about the disease and also providing information about the emotional fallout, which is deep. And I completely take your point, Cindy, that the story I tell is very retrospective. The scene of the crime happened 30 years ago, and it's very different, I think, for people just receiving this news about their loved one. But I think it's wonderful because you do talk about the progress, both of you talk about the progress that has been made and what it was like in the 1980s versus now, and just, you know, how to process it. And one of the weird things to me about Alzheimer's is how different that disease is for every person. And, you know, with my friends that have had cancer, they generally have a kind of a, not a standard path, but there's a pretty straightforward path as to how a particular cancer is going to impact somebody and progress. And Alzheimer's is so different. I mean, every person you talk to, it seems like their parent or whoever it is started in a different way. And so I think as you progress through the different symptoms or side effects, I guess it's symptoms of the disease and then how they impacted your father. And then Bruce talks about the science behind, you know, why that particular thing happens. I think that's very comforting to people to understand, okay, this particular issue that is happening with my loved one is common and it is unfolding, whether it's in the same path or manner in which someone else's is unfolding, it may not be, but it's still going to be happening at different points of the disease. That is so true. And if I can just add on to that, my father had early onset Alzheimer's. And I remember Bruce explaining to me and learning about just how different that is from, and by early onset, the ideas, the diagnosis is 65 or younger. That's early onset. I was going to ask you that because you hear that term a lot, but I had no idea where the cutoff was. Right. That's my understanding of the cutoff. And older is Alzheimer's. And when I was studying at UCSF, one of my dearest friend's mother was suffering from Alzheimer's and I would visit her with my friend at the nursing home. And I just remember being incredulous about sort of the difference between my father's experience and her experience. She was in her 80s. She was speaking Yiddish. She was going to movies. She was forgetful and the same stories, the same questions needed to be told over and over again. But the difference 
was astonishing to me. So I think your your point is really well taken. I'm sure Bruce has tons of experience in, in seeing how Alzheimer's differently affects different people. But but just in my own limited experience, the distinction between early onset versus later was enormous. And it does seem to impact people differently, even when they have regular onset Alzheimer's. You know, seeing some of my friends' parents versus my dad. And my dad is actually very aware. And he's able to know which days he's doing well and which days he's not. And that seems to be pretty rare. I mean, the doctor always comments on that, as do my friends whose parents don't have any idea that they're struggling with their memory. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. And I I think a lot the anatomy of the illness, where the, the disease hits the brain first and how it spreads out is a major factor in determining the type of symptoms and behaviors someone will exhibit. Uh, So if the disease starts as it did, we think, in Cindy's dad in the left side of the brain, you know, it's words. And um, behavior is pretty normal, and memory can even be relatively normal. So this, this myth that Alzheimer's has to begin with memory has been shattered. But then there are other factors like the family environment, the social connectedness, the physical health of the person that also are huge determinants of how this disease progresses. And I think increasingly we have really good data. It surprised me at first when it came out that tells us that if you have a support system, if you have a family like Cindy's uh, that are you know surrounding the loved one and protecting them, they do much better. They even progress more slowly than if they're left alone. For sure. And our doctor talks a lot about that too. The people that just sit in front of the TV all day decline pretty quick. But if you're doing the things they tell you, the exercise, the social, the eating well, that it will really slow the decline. Absolutely. Well, I have really enjoyed speaking with both of you about the book. And I think it will be so helpful to people that are struggling with a loved one with Alzheimer's. And I always ask, about fun reads before I wrap up. What have either one of you read that you really liked lately? I'm a huge fan of Doris Lessing, uh, who was a Nobel laureate, uh, who experienced, well, what the world went through, beginning with a, apartheid as a, as a child, through Stalinism, Nazism. And she went to Afghanistan in the 1980s when the whole situation was beginning to unfold. And wrote a brilliant book, uh, The Winds uh, Tear Our World Apart. And the the insight of this wise uh, woman about what was coming, what was happening, our uh, inability to deal with climate change. uh, It's just an extraordinary read. I think even more extraordinary, you know, 30 some years later, even after her death, to see how much she could uh, predict based on her worldly experiences. Just love the book. It's short. And then you wish that enough people had read it that they paid better attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cindy, what about you? I had the honor of supervising a senior thesis this past year and got to read with one of my incredibly talented students a bunch of books that I had already read, read for the first time. And one of them was Don DeLillo's White Noise. I would recommend to your audience to 
to take a look at that book. It's brilliant and funny and really timely. And then I already alluded to Tattoo on My Brain by Daniel Gibbs. I thought that was a terrific book. And I guess one other book that I recently read that I enjoyed a great deal is called Liberty, L-I-B-E-R-T-I-E, a novel by Caitlin Greenledge that takes place in the 19th century and the protagonist ends up leaving the U.S. and it is just a fascinating story that revisits the U.S. during the time of slavery and emancipation. Again, very timely. So I am just reading everything I can get my hands on these days and enjoying all of it. My kids read White Noise as juniors at the school that they go to. I have never read it, but they've both my girls have told me a lot about it. It's fabulous. It's my favorite DeLillo novel, definitely. We also read Cosmopolis together, which was less interesting to me, but my student was a double major in English and computer science. And so she brought her computer science skills to an understanding of DeLillo, which was fabulous. So I would recommend that you read White Noise, Cindy. It's really terrific. It'll be fun to talk to your kids about too. Certainly. And then my son will be reading it again next year. So maybe I'll just wait and read it at the same time he is and he and I can chat about it. There you go. (laughs) Thank you both so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This is a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access some fabulous bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group and Young Center Houston for sponsoring this episode. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.